speaking this afternoon about godly choices. So I think that uh, is very helpful. Now let's just see if we've got, uh, see if we can make the technology work this evening. We had a few hiccups last night, didn't we? Well, uh, we got the first slide up anyway. Uh, as I said, uh, my name's Steve. So I'm the, I'm the vicar uh, here at St. Gerald. I'm the new kid on the block, okay? I'm still wet around the ears. I'm still finding my feet. Um, still getting to know Northampton. We've moved from Shropshire. Um, I thought I'd just uh, put this up. Recently, we've been thinking about what God's calling is upon our church and trying to just focus our efforts. And uh, as we've met and sought the Lord together, this is what we've kind of come up with as our core purpose as a church. Not our vision, but our purpose. We're a gospel-focused town-centered church rejoicing and reveling in the grace of God. And that seems to be right for this conference, doesn't it? Um, but we're called for a purpose, and we believe that we live to equip and commission all of God's people to bless others in word and deed, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, our enduring purpose is the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, isn't it? So this is, what, this is how we're trying to express it. I do need to say that somebody's been sending their love to you. Do I need to switch it on? Marcus sends his love from London. He misses you all. Do you miss him as well? Yay. Yeah, we miss him at St. Giles. And he sent this message. Big love, big hugs. I'm praying for you today. P.S. You're always welcome in Balham. And that's where he is. He's gone to Balham in London, the Church of Ascension Balham. And uh, this is Maggie, my wife. Um, here she is on the front row. Um, we've got four children. Uh, none of our children have come to, te uh, come to Northampton. It's not because they don't like Northampton or it's not because they don't like us. It's because the youngest is 21 and the eldest is 27. So it's the first time we've moved house without our children. So that's an adjustment for us. But we're glad to be here. Uh, we're glad to be working together with other churches. And I'm very glad to be here this evening as we think about this theme of intimacy uh, with God. And this afternoon, we're going to open up the Word together, so I'd invite you to get ready to turn to Isaiah chapter 30. And um, of course, like, like many of the passages in Isaiah, this chapter contains some very familiar promises from God, some of the great promises from God. And, and often we hear these promises of God uh, from Isaiah, sometimes a bit out of context, because we, you know, we hear them just on their own. Uh, so, for example, you might have heard in verse 18, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. And this chapter is full of some of the great promises of God. And um, I think it will be helpful for us to look at the overall context within which Isaiah was speaking so that we understand this message that he's bringing to the people of God. And I, and I do think that it contains then some helpful material for us as we look to go deeper into this theme of intimacy with God. So let's pray for God's blessing upon his word now. Father, we pray that as we turn to the word, as, as we open it up, Lord, we pray you'll open us up. Lord, as we look at the written word, Lord, would you lead us to Jesus, the living word. Father, we open the door of our hearts to your word this afternoon, and we pray that you might anoint your word, that it might bear fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah. Now, just, just in passing, I'm sure you've probably heard um, that uh, many people think there's, there's a bit of significance about the way Isaiah is structured. So Isaiah's got 66 chapters, and there's 66 books in the Bible. Um, the first half, chapters 1 to 39, are often called the Book of Judgment, and chapters 40 to 66 are the Book of Comfort. It's like the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the story of struggle and captivity, of exile and judgment. It's the story of God's people struggling to live out their calling. The New Testament is the story of rescue and deliverance and comfort. And of course, that second half begins, Isaiah 40, with that great promise pointing to Jesus, a voice calling in the desert, make way for the Lord. So uh, many people think there's parallels in the way uh, that, um, that Isaiah is set out. And in chapter 30, this is right in the middle of the book of Judgment. Not very promising, you think, for an afternoon as we think about intimacy with God. Even worse, it's in the middle of a section called the six woes. You might look, if you see Isaiah chapter 30, the heading, Woe to the Obstinate Nation. Is that the heading in your, in your chapter? Are you ready? Okay, well, even in the middle of the book of judgment... In the middle of the woes, we hear the voice of hope, the voice of mercy, the voice of blessing. We hear words of love and compassion. We see the heart of God. Now, I'm going to read a good chunk. Is that okay? Chapter 30. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 just to set it up. And then we're going to pick up the main part from verse 15. Isaiah chapter 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images overcovered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. 
And he will also send you rain for the seed you sow on the ground. And the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he has afflicted. It's good to hear some of these familiar verses in their context. This afternoon, we're thinking about how practically, how we can enter more deeply, how we can help one another to enter more deeply into intimacy with God. And this session is about hearing the voice of God, hearing what God is saying to us. And then we're going to move on and we're going to sort of be soaking in that and thinking of other ways in which we can enter a little bit more deeply. But let's see what this has to say to us today. And um, I want to encourage you to have your Bible opening. We're going to be skimming all the way through that and, and, and picking up some of the threads of this thought. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at three things. I want to sort of say what this passage has to say about the heart of God. I want to look at what this says about the holiness of God and about it, what it says about the blessings of God. Often we want to jump from the first to the third, don't we? In fact, often we want to jump straight to the third. But it's never that way with God. And so I hope it's helpful as we open uh, this up and, and as we look in the flow of this passage and see what it's saying. I do believe there's something here for us as we gather this afternoon. So first of all, let's look at what it's got to say about the heart of God. Because we see in, in an amazing way, we see the tender, compassionate heart of God unfolded in this passage. So verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Some of the versions say, in returning and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. As we heard last night, of course, the basis of our intimacy with God the Father is a restored relationship. It doesn't come outside of repentance and returning. The prodigal that we, that we were singing about earlier on, he could not experience the intimacy of God in the pigsty. He had to return home. He had to come to his, sentences and his sentence. And what did he find when he came home? He found the Father waiting for him, looking for him, longing for him. In repentance and rest is your salvation, God says to his people. Repentance speaks of coming back to the Father. Rest speaks of enjoying His presence. And uh, this, is the, this is the heart of what we were sort of talking about last night. And I love what Tozer says, A.W. Tozer. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of the New Testament. The throbbing heart of the New Testament. God's heart throbs and beats and pulsates with love for you and for me. And he longs for us to know this place of resting in him. 
Repentance and rest. That's about coming back to Him. That's about the beginning of our salvation. That's the root and the ground, and the firm ground of our faith. It's all anchored upon that, upon His love, returning and repenting and receiving it. But quietness and trust then speak of our ongoing, daily walk with God. We keep resting in Him. We stay in that place of looking to receive His love and His grace. As I've heard Brian say many times, it's all by grace from start to finish. One of the things that we've been looking at in our church at St. Giles, we've been looking at this book. I don't know whether you've heard of it, Rhythms of Grace. And it comes from that uh, the, the translation in the message of Matthew's words in, in, or Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, the, uh, the rhythms of grace. And God calls us to live within that rhythm of grace from start to finish, from the start to the finish of our Christian lives, from the start to the finish of every day. It's an old, 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 old song, and we are going to sing it later, but it's, it's just so true. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand, not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence, Father, you call us. You call us to come. Into your presence, you draw us. And now, by your grace, we come. It's the heart of it, isn't it? Our access to the loving, intimate, accepting presence of the Father is always through Jesus. We can't come outside of Him. We cannot do it. It's not on our own merit and goodness. It's the result of our restored relationship through Jesus. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then moving on to verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isn't that amazing to think of the Lord longing? The longing in the heart of the Lord. I mean, we know a little bit of that, don't we, humanly speaking? That longing for intimacy, relationship, for things to be better. The heart of God is longing for His people. His heart is filled with compassion. He's a God of justice. I love that idea that the Lord is longing to welcome us into worship. I mean, we might think that we long to come to church, but before we've even set out of the door, the Lord is longing for us to come in to His presence. And then it says, blessed are those who wait for you. And of course, this is not just waiting like waiting for a bus. This is not just waiting. This is not just waiting for winter to be over, for spring to come, or for summer to come back. You know that word waiting in the Old Testament? It's a deeply theological word. It's about looking to Him. It's about relying on Him. It means we don't run ahead of Him. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's been in that place of abandoned dependence upon the Father, looking to Him, waiting for His Word, almost saying like Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, I will not go up from here. He's longing to be gracious. His heart is filled with compassion. And he blesses those who wait for him. And then verse 19. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. Your waiting will be over. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. 
The heart of God is a heart of intimacy. The heart of God is a heart of compassion and graciousness. The heart of God is that we might cry out to him for help. That we might say that we need him, that we might admit that we cannot do it on our own. And what does it say? He will hear. He will answer as soon as he hears. For the people who look to him, for the people who uh, turn their lives around in repentance, for those who will rest in the Father's love, who will wait and be attentive and listen to him, it says he will turn quickly. As soon as he hears, he will answer. How gracious he will be, it says. How gracious he will be. He will be when you cry for help. Never let it be said that the Old Testament is a book of law and the New Testament is a book of grace. The Old Testament is full of grace. Absolutely. All the way through this story. It's the story of grace. It's the story of a God who will not give up on his people. It's the story of God who longs to show them compassion. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. It's full of grace. From start to finish, this book is a book of grace. So he's got a heart of compassion, a heart of grace, a heart that is waiting for us to cry out to him. Then verse 20, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. The father longs to walk close to his children. I love that idea. For those who turn to him, who develop this habit of waiting for his word and prompting, you will hear a voice. It speaks of closeness. I think this speaks of whispering. Now, I might be wrong there. It's not that he's standing from a distance shouting so that we might hear him. It's that he's standing right beside his children, whispering in his ear, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Turn to the left. Don't go that way. Go this way. I love what it says in the voice, which is a translation of this that I'm, that I'm loving. Your ears will hear sweet words behind you. Go this way. There is your path. Not lovely? Sweet words. That's the heart of the Father. He longs to whisper sweet words in your ear, saying, this is the way. Walk in it. The heart of God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing here in this lovely passage, the heart of God, the heart of God longing to be close to us, longing to guide us, longing to be near to us. And that's where it all begins. It's all about him. It's all about him and his heart. But within this message of love and grace, there's a call to repentance. There's a call that we might have only one God in our lives. Um, because you notice in verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, comma, but you would have none of it. How could it be? How could that be that, that the people would respond to a God with a heart like this and say, we don't want that? Well, of course, we know that that's always been the way with God's people in the Old Testament and down through the centuries. It's always been the case that somehow we end up in that place where we're not always able to enter into it, somehow we end up in this place where we say, we don't want any of it. This gets to the heart of what God has led in my heart for this conference this afternoon. 
Isaiah's ministry, of course, we know, began with an encounter with the awesome holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and I heard them saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he fell down and said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people with unclean, unclean lips. Praise God that in the church, for many years now, we have this restored sense of the intimacy of the Father. But I believe he also desires a restored sense of the holiness of God. If we separate these two themes, we get sentimentality. If we separate these two themes, we have a God who is at our beck and call. If we separate the themes of intimacy and holiness, our lives get dominated by our needs and our agenda. We have to hold them together. Because he is the Holy One of Israel. Here is the repentance. And uh, I'll try and scoot this a little bit more through this a bit more quickly. But um, Isaiah is calling for repentance in three areas. And I think these three areas are absolutely crucial to the church today. If we are to recover a sense of God's power and effectiveness in our, in our churches, if we're to see the blessing that we long for, first of all, he calls them to repent because they were looking for help in the wrong places. That's how I began with verses 1 and 2. They were looking to Egypt for salvation. They were looking to Egypt for protection. They were looking elsewhere. Isn't that just what we, what's happening in the world today? People looking in all the wrong places for salvation looking in all the wrong places for intimacy and significance, a sense of worth and a sense of purpose in their life, looking for help in all the wrong places. But we can easily get distracted in the church. We can easily find our gaze turning away from the Lord and looking to human strategies and looking for quick answers and looking in all the wrong places. In fact, in our own Christian lives, we can lose this place of grace we can end up looking for love in all the wrong places. And then they were bowing down to false gods and idols. Well, praise God in verse 22, Isaiah talks about them throwing away their idols. But of course, we know that this was absolutely endemic in the Old Testament. This was at the heart of the struggle of this people to be the people that God had called them to be. The time and time again, they turned away from the Lord and they turned to idols. The issue of idolatry was toxic to the people of Israel. And the issue of idolatry is toxic for the church today, for you and for me. It's rife in our lives. It has crept under the radar. It has crept into the church. It has crept into our discipleship. We bow down to the idols of our culture, left, right, and center, and we often don't realize we're doing it. What are the idols today? I mean, it was kind of obvious then, wasn't it? Idols of stone and wood and statues and so on. What about our idols today? What are the idols for us? Well, William, William Temple, he was a good Anglican bishop. I think actually he might have been an archbishop as far as I know. He said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Tim Keller said, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. If you want to know where your heart is, look to where your mind goes when it wanders. 
What do you do if you suddenly have time to spare? If you suddenly have an hour to yourself that you didn't think you were going to have? Where does your mind go? What do you do? Catch up on a few messages on your phone? Run off and do that job that you wished you had done? I think these are the idols, some of the idols of our culture today. Success and sex and technology and wealth and beauty. And they come right into our lives. And, and it's, it's, they're, they're coming at us from every angle. And it's so hard to keep them out that we end up just giving up the fight and giving in and bowing our hearts, handing over our money, surrendering the affections of our hearts, surrendering our time to the idols of our culture. Um, apologies to the folks from St. Giles because you've heard me ranting about this before. Um, I'm trying not to become a grumpy old man and Maggie, um, Maggie has brought a necessary corrective to my ministry. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. What if we began to treat our Bibles the way we treat our cell phones? What if we carried it with us everywhere? Turned back to get it if we forgot it. Checked it for messages throughout the day. Used it in the case of emergency. Spent an hour or more using it each and every day. Could this be an idol? What would you do if I said this afternoon, I want every single person to bring their mobile phone, put it in that basket and leave it here? I mean, what would you do? What would you think? I mean, I could, I could make a bob or two. I could, probably, I could probably sort out a few of the financial issues in our church. But how would we feel if we were suddenly cut off? Or if I said, let's just switch it off for a month. As I say, I'm trying not to turn into a grumpy old man. But the idols of our culture have crept in. They've taken away the affection of our hearts. Okay. Okay. There's no answer to that. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Now, uh, I, do have a, I do have a confession to make because I'm not standing here as, 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 as the expert or somebody who's got it all right. And I, I do have a confession to make because um, I, do carry a, I do carry around a picture uh, in, in, in my Bible. Okay. Um, I've always liked her, actually. I've got a bit of a thing for, for Kylie, so... I, um, I, ca- I carry that picture around in, in my Bible, you know, and, and if, you know, if I need a bit of comfort, you know, I just, I just, I just, I just get it out and have a little look, and, and, and Kylie and I just, you know, I just think of how things might have been. Um, yeah, my, my, my mind does tend to wander, you know, that, that is true, because, I mean, let's face it, she's very attractive, she's, she's very desirable. And, and, and there's part of my heart longs to have her. And, oh, and I'm just being honest with you. Is that all right? Well, I mean, I'm among friends here this afternoon. <laughs> just imagine if that were true. Imagine how my wife would feel about it. Just imagine... Because I'll tell you this, idolatry is adultery. It's exactly what it is. I cannot have ongoing intimacy with Maggie, my wife, whilst I'm giving her 
the attention of my heart. I just can't do it. And if we are giving the affection and the intimacy of our minds and our hearts to the idols of our culture, it will rob us of intimacy with God. It's everywhere. The temptation for comfort and pleasure and popularity and significance, and all of those things matter. They do matter, actually. God intends us to have all of those. But we end up looking in all the wrong places. And uh, the predominance of Facebook and other ways of connecting, they reflect the deep cry of the heart for intimacy. But it doesn't answer it because Facebook is intimacy without commitment. It's come and go intimacy. It's put myself out there intimacy. It's project an image of myself so that others might like me. We must not bow down to these idols and give them our hearts. Because if we surrender our hearts to the idols of our culture, what room is there for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? So they were looking for help in the wrong places. They were bowed down to idols. And they were relying on human wisdom. And you'll see this all through the book of Isaiah. Rather than turning to the Lord, they turn to human strategies. They turn to human wisdom. It's very interesting. I mean, I wasn't in Northampton, uh, and, but, uh, but I know that when the Twin Towers fell, many people picked this verse out of Isaiah chapter 30. Did you see that verse? Verse 25. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. People saw something actually in that verse that they thought was being fulfilled. I wasn't sure about it. But what are the towers all about? What are the towers doing right in the middle of this passage? What do towers speak of in the Bible? They speak of man exalting himself to the place that only God deserves. Look back at Isaiah 2. Look at the Tower of Babel. Towers speak of human pride and arrogance. I will reach up to the sky and I will exalt myself. Relying on human wisdom, human pride and achievement. And this happens in our day like never before. We cannot have ongoing intimacy with God if we're looking elsewhere, if we surrender the affections of our hearts to the idols of our culture, and if we rely on our own human wisdom and strength and ingenuity and achievement. Now, I want to just sort of dip out of Isaiah just for a moment. Now, forgive me, I'm, I'm daring to speak about this when, in a sense, it's not my history. Yeah, the Elijah anointing. I mean, I think it's something that came to Northampton quite a few years ago. But I'm just praying this afternoon about what this message is all about and how it might connect with um, the Elijah anointing and the ministry of Elijah. So I went back and thought, where did Elijah's ministry begin? What were the first words he said? What was the prophetic message that he brought? When he comes to confront um, Ahab, Ahab says... Here comes that troublemaker. And Elijah says this, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands 
and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And the centerpiece of Elijah's ministry was a confrontation on Mount Carmel. Where is the one true God and will you follow him? That's what Carmel was about. And he said, right, come on then, face it up then. Let's see who is the true God. And then later on in that chapter, 1 Kings 18, he cries out and says, Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This ministry of turning the hearts around again is about turning the heart back to God, about giving him the rightful place in our hearts. But what about this guy, John the Baptist? It says of him, he will bring many back, many of the people back to the Lord their God, and he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think I'm daring to say that this is at the heart of the ministry of Elijah, the heart of the ministry of John the Baptist, is to confront the false gods and to call the people back. Sorry, I'm tapping my Bible, sorry. I'm really sorry, I apologize about that. Jesus said, I tell you, Elijah has already come. I wasn't here when the words were given about the Elijah anointing, but it seems to me that the ministry of Elijah, the ministry of John the Baptist, the calling upon the people of God is this call to repentance, a call to turn back, to surrender and yield our hearts and affections completely to the one true God. So the heart of God, the holiness of God. Now, I'll skip over this, um, if you forgive me. Uh, this perhaps is, is familiar to us anyway. This passage also speaks about the blessings of God. He says this, verse 22, Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images overlaid with gold. You'll throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. When we throw away our idols, this blessing will come, I believe. Rain was a sign of God's blessing for the people. It's about God blessing his people with crops and with rain and with fruitfulness. It speaks to us of fruitfulness and blessing, evangelism and growth, peace and blessing. And then in the verse that I've already referred to, in the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. When the towers are torn down in our hearts, when the towers are torn down in our churches, when the towers of human pride and arrogance fall, the Lord's blessing comes. I believe that's it. It's about repentance. God is promising rain from above and streams from below. Hallelujah. It's about revival and it's about refreshing in our hearts. And then the passage ends with a sense of awe and wonder as worship is restored back to the centerpiece. Um, 
of the children of Israel. Verse 29, you will sing as on the night they celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudburst, thunderstorm, and hail. He promises blessing, blessing upon our work, blessing in our churches, blessing in our ministry, blessing in worship. We all want that blessing, don't we? We want that blessing for ourselves. We want it for our churches, but we want it for our town. We want it for the nation. And God wants it too. It's here. God wants it. He absolutely does. He wants to reveal his heart. He invites us to intimacy. But he calls us as his people to purity, to faithfulness, and to covenant love. Now Maggie debated with me. We debated whether it was right to say this. We cannot have the covenant blessings without the covenant commitments. Now I am not in that trying to undo the message of grace at the heart of our faith. But we cannot have the covenant blessings without the covenant commitment. Because he's a jealous God. He will not yield his glory to another. We cannot have intimacy with God if he is not our first love. The one true God of our hearts. Praise God that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's about grace from start to finish. And I, I've tried to be clear about what the passage says. I've tried to be clear about what I think the Lord is saying about the affections of our hearts and about what we're called to be. But it's always set within the fact that the heart of God is a heart of grace and compassion and kindness. There's always the promise of blessing when we come back to God. Always, always, always. I'm just finishing. To come back to God, it's always through Jesus. We always come to Him. And it's amazing how I've, I've, I've seen this little message from Isaiah. I see it there in the, in, in the ministry of Jesus. It's in Him that we find the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Isn't that what we were talking about last night? Talking about the Apostle John leaning on the breast of Jesus. They'd responded to the gracious invitation of the Savior. Come to me and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest is found in him, in Jesus. It's through him that we come into this relationship. It's through him that we find not just salvation, but quietness and trust. We find our strength in him day by day as we keep coming back to him. How do we deal with the idols of our culture? How do we deal with the idols of our hearts? been grappling with this with quite a while, and, and, and I think there's just one verse in the New Testament that just gets to the heart of it. Jesus says, whoever wants me to be my disciple must deny themselves 
and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. We're not talking about trying to earn God's love. We're not trying to talk about earning our salvation. We're not trying to get Him to like us. If we are to deal with the idols of our culture today, we have to deny ourselves. I think it's as simple as that. I I actually do. Because all the grace is there. All the power is there. The presence of His Holy Spirit is all there for us. But He does ask us to deny ourselves daily. Because the message of our culture is, don't deny yourself. Have it now. Have it today. You're worth it. Everywhere. Get that new phone. Get that new car. Hold back a bit of your money for yourself. The simplest way to break the hold of money is to give it away. The simplest way to break the hold of technology is to just give it away. Get something old. (laughs) Got to be careful I don't slip into the whole sex um, (laughs) intimacy one there. Deny yourself. Deny Deny yourself food. If sex has become an idol, deny yourself. It's not to rule over you. None of these idols are meant to rule over us. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Deny yourself and take up your cross every single day. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is how we deal with the idols. And then finally, what was my third point earlier on? The blessings, that's right. The blessings. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. We can end up looking in all the wrong places, drinking from the wrong wells, dipping into the wrong sources of comfort, looking elsewhere for significance. Jesus said, don't drink from those dirty, filthy, rotten wells. Come and drink from me. Are you thirsty? Are we thirsty today? Are we longing for this intimacy? Are we longing for God's closeness? Are we longing for this blessing? Are we longing longing to walk in His ways day by day? Are we longing to hear that little whispering voice at every single point saying, this is the way, walk in it. Do you want wisdom? This is the way. Do you want meaning? Here is meaning. Do you want significance? Do you want blessing in your lives? Come to me and drink. Why would we look elsewhere, you say? But the reality is we do. Because we're human. Because we fail. Because we're sinful. Because we're flawed. He says, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. Are you drinking from the wrong well today? Is there something that's polluting your mind and heart and spirit? In repentance and rest is your salvation. Jesus says, Come to me and drink. And when we come to him, he promises the Holy Spirit. The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, says the apostle. Here is where we encounter and experience this intimacy, this refreshing in our souls, this satisfying of the deep longing that we have 
not by yielding our hearts to those false gods, not by drinking from the wrong wells, but by coming to the one who longs to pour his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit.